Welcome, everybody. I'm Professor Jay Bhattacharya. This is the Illusion of Consensus podcast. And today I am delighted to have with me uh, Gary Tobbs. Uh, Gary is a, is a journalist, a self-described journalist, who has written uh, a number of, of tremendously important books. Uh, I, 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 and uh, I've read one of them um, uh, a while ago. It's, it's a book called Good Calories, Bad Calories, in which, in which Gary made the case that the dietary advice that Americans received was based on absolutely flimsy evidence, um, and that uh, that in fact the 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 the, the push toward uh, high high carb uh, essentially diets that were low in fat um, was was not based on scientific data that was convincing, but rather on uh, the the power of, of of certain academic physicians to put forward their ideas. And convince the the U.S. government and other governments to adopt uh, that kind of dietary advice based on on uh, on rather flimsy science. Um, Gary followed that up uh, with with another book on on um, on keto diets, uh, which we're not going to talk about. What we're going to talk about instead is uh, Gary's new book on diabetes. Uh, di the the book is uh, titled uh, "Rethinking Rethinking Diabetes." And it, it is an absolute blockbuster, and I, I was delighted to be able to read it, uh, it when it was uh, came out uh, when Gary finished it early, early, uh, last year. And I and I've taken another look to remind myself for this podcast. Uh, Gary, welcome to the podcast. I'm really looking forward to this conversation because it seems like the story you have to tell about diabetes is something that everyone who's concerned about this disease, which is an enormously large number of people, should know. Uh, thank you, Jay. Welcome for having me. And I have to say, when I you know, you told me you were doing a podcast called The, the Illusion of Consensus. I thought, well, we're, we're going to have to talk here because I've spent 40 years as a journalist writing about the illusion of consensus in effect and how uh, researchers and organ health organizations and, and NIH bureaucrats can force consensus. Uh, I, I actually think, in you know, with all best intentions, but enormous harm comes out of it. Or So... And my background, just for your listeners, is I since the 1980s. I, I in my very first book, I've been focusing on on just bad science, the technical term in the physics community that I grew up in is the pathological science, which is the science of things that aren't so, and it basically probably represents 50 to 80 percent of all research that's produced, and I started off writing two books on first physicists who discovered non-existent fundamental particles. I was embedded with them at CERN, uh, the big physics lab in Geneva. And then I did uh, <laughs> spent three years of my life writing a book about cold fusion, the great scientific fiasco of the, the 1980s. It was the book was called Bad Science. And when I was done with that, my friends in the physics community said, if you're really fascinated in bad science, you should look at this stuff in public health. It's terrible. And I was writing for the journal Science by then, uh, doing investigations, and I segued into public health. And uh, by the late 90s, I stumbled into the nutrition world, and I had been following the conventional wisdom, doing what everyone else did, believing that we should all be eating a low-fat, low-salt, diet, and I did a series of investigations, award-winning investigations for science on those issues, and it just kept going, and I've been doing it ever since, and eventually, um, I think people are getting tired of my message, but um, 
it's stunning what happens in these fields. Let's just put it that way. Uh, so, so that is a fascinating topic, and I want to I want to explore that maybe just for a minute before we head into your book. Uh, so, a couple questions about this: Why does it take a journalist with this scientific background that you have to tell a story that critiques a, dom a, a dominant scientific uh, sort of uh, paradigm? Why why would why why wouldn't like scientists themselves inside the field be able to do this? Well, they should be doing it. I mean, that's lesson number one. Um, you know, part of the first step in any scientific investigation is to familiarize yourself with the evidence supporting the beliefs you're going into the field or into your research with because you don't want to build the uh, whatever uh, next steps of your research on top of a faulty foundation. So if you've read the classic like essay on this is Richard Feynman's cargo cult science. Um, uh, you know, uh, wonderful essay. Everyone yeah, should lecture, read. and he and he says he's stunned by a young psychologist who says she wants to see if what happened in experiment A conditions A will happen in experiment conditions B, and she he says to her, "Well, you got to redo A first because you can't be sure that that was right." before you decide to see if the same thing, and she goes to her advisor and asks, you know, can I redo A? And he says, no, we haven't got the money for that, just do B. Um, but anyway, it's, it's, it's a sort of fundamental first step. Like, I'm going into this with certain beliefs, and then I'm going to build my research on that. On what basis do I hold those beliefs? Uh, I, you know, I honestly don't know why the researchers don't do it themselves, other than the fact that they don't have time, they don't have funding, and they're not encouraged to do it by their advisors because their advisors are either the people who are going to have held those beliefs going in and are can teaching I, can it to I, can them. I give, uh, can I give my personal perspective as a scientist? Uh, it, it's, it's, it doesn't pay at all. Like in terms of essentially like we're doing is like if you're, if you're going to do the kind of work you're doing in, uh, and let's say I, I, I did nutrition science for a living, I'm going to have to go to war with all of my colleagues. All all the work that they've done, even work that I've done, is going to be essentially null and void because I I'm going to come to some conclusion that says that the, the the methods and the ideas that we were following forever were wrong. And I'm going to be I, I mean I, I'm essentially going to war with my clan, my own clan. I think I, I think it's even more profound. It's your own church. I tried to understand this. So one of the steps along the way, after I'd written my first two books. Um, on nutrition and obesity and chronic disease, I co-founded a not-for-profit um, called the Nutrition Science Initiative with this uh, physician, Peter Atia, who's now like wildly famous in the longevity world. And we funded research and we dealt with all these uh, investigators who, what we want, you know, we believe it doesn't do any good to fund people who already believe what we believe to do the research, because if they find what we believe, which they probably will, because that's the nature of human nature, nobody's going to believe them anyway. They're going to say, well, look who did the study. So we have to find people who hold the conventional wisdom, who we think are good scientists and fund them. And we did. And people who I had respected, but we could never get them interested enough in the arguments we were making so they would understand the sort of alternative hypothesis. And I thought about this, like, why not? 
And, and one example is, so I did write a book about ketogenic diets. I mean, on the case for ketogenic diets, I eat one of these and I wanted to explain why this is, appears to be a rational way to eat for a subset of humanity that suffers from a large subset of humanity that suffers from obesity and diabetes. And so um, one of the issues was, could we get these people to try the ketogenic diet as many of them, the researchers were overweight themselves and were getting heavier during the years we were working together. It's sort of, if you want to understand uh, this sort of alternative perspective, you should try this diet yourself and see what happens, you know, because the idea is you don't lose weight because you eat less, you lose weight because you lower your insulin secretion, and it's a different phenomenon. Um, and we couldn't get them to do it. And we just couldn't get them to, we couldn't get them to try it. It's like, just do it for a month. That's all we're asking. We're not, money doesn't depend on it. We're funding you anyway, but we think you'll understand better. And because in the trials, they were using the ketogenic diet as a tool, an intervention to, to manipulate the endocrine states, um, it would have helped them to understand their intervention better. And we couldn't do it. And I thought, you know, the issue, I started reading up on groupthink. And the issue is, it's as though, you know, these are very well-respected researchers. I mean, we've got some of the best in the field. They got there by believing the conventional wisdom and reinforcing the conventional wisdom in their research. And everyone they knew believed, thought, and believed exactly as they did. And if they tried this diet and found it interesting, the experience and the way we thought, they would start deviating from the belief system of their church, of their colleagues. Of, you know, they, they were professors at Ivy League institutions. They had ran committees. They had awards. All of this had been because they fit into the conventional thinking in the field. They had, in effect, almost nothing to gain except excommunication. <laughs> and one of the ways I thought about it was Imagine there's an, you know, we're talking, I could see your office door in the background and there's a knock on your door and this, you go answer it, and it's an old friend of yours from college. And he's got this silly grin on his face and he looks healthy as can be like crazy healthy and rested. And you remember him from college, he was half, you know, harried and sleep deprived and anxious. And you go, Jesus, Jim, it's so good to see you. You look terrific. And then you say, what, what happened? And he says, well, you know, I've been Maybe I've been, I, I was having a lot of trouble in life. I was depressed. I was anxious. I was fighting communities that, you know, thought my work was dangerous. Um, I couldn't sleep. And so I started doing these um, seminars with the Reverend Moon. And they were revelatory. And it changed my life. And Jay, you look a little hairy, a little sleep deprived. <laughs> um a little I mean, anxious would I mean that's the, that's the thing it's like uh, the nature of belief is complicated right in science we tell ourselves a story that we while we look at the data and based on our uh reason we can we can go and evaluate what data makes sense and what doesn't make sense and and arrive at something approaching the truth based on our our, our reason and, and our ability to to test our test our beliefs refined over time with experiment and so on um, but in fact, what you're, what you're saying is, is absolutely rings true. Like we come with priors, especially if you uh, if you got a PhD or an MD or something, some some fancy degree. 
Um, the, the, the professional schools, what they do is they shape your mind to think a certain way. Um, and it's very difficult once you've gone through that process to be willing to say, well, what I was taught wasn't right. Uh, well, they, and not only that, you've got to be willing to say that publicly. Otherwise, it doesn't mean anything. And as soon as you do, you set yourself aside from you're, you're in effect voicing. A, a you become a fringe epidemiologist, my friend. That's that, that I've, I learned that from personal experience. Um, you become and you that's it. And you've got to be able to risk that like you. It's funny when I wrote my first book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, a reviewer, Gina Collada in The New York Times called me a brave and courageous journalist. And it's like. In retrospect, I look brave and courageous, right? Because I didn't know what was going to happen to me when I suggested that the conventional thinking that we had all embraced since the 1980s and had become public health guidelines and was a dogma of nutritionists and dietitians and heart disease research and everyone else was wrong. I mean, when you did what you did, it did, by the time you did it, on some level, it took courage because I think you must have had some inkling what was going to happen to you. <laughs> Hi, everyone. A quick word from our first and exciting new sponsor, Alchemy Elements. We've been shopping around trying to find the best sponsors that align with our mission and our values and what we stand for. And we've come across Alchemy Elements, which I'm very excited to bring to you guys, which is a synergistic herbal supplement. It's a mix of several adaptogenic plant compounds. For those of you who don't know, adaptogens, you might have heard on Andrew Huberman's podcast, are uh, plant medicines that help the body adapt to stress, essentially. And so there's a number of adaptogens in here, including cordyceps mushrooms, reishi mushrooms, astrologus, shiljot, polygala, lion's mane mushrooms, and other compounds as well. And you just take a tablespoon of this, you put it in your morning coffee or your smoothie or protein shake, and you're good to go. Um, I've been doing this for about a week, and as it suggests, um, some of the short-term effects of increased focus, increased concentration, more energy, I've already been feeling some of that. Uh, look forward to taking it more in the long term and reporting back as we do more of these ads. Uh, we've been very careful and selective in what to, what, what to sponsor on our program, and this is something that I can totally get behind. And as long as you keep hearing ads about this particular product, Alchemy Elements, you can be assured that this is something that I stand behind and can personally vouch for and recommend individuals try. Um, so for a limited time right now, um, people who are watching or listening to this podcast, they can get a 10% discount on their first order, or they can get a 30% discount for all subscription orders if you um, subscribe for a certain amount of deliveries per month. And if you um, order a subscription package, then you can get the premium gold kit as well, which includes this um, really nice gold bottle and a gold spoon to store your alchemy elements. Um, just use the code word illusion. If you're on Spotify or Apple or Substack, um, we'll drop a link below, or you can manually uh, type in alchemyelements.com and you can add um, your uh, products to the cart and you can put in the code illusion and you can get the 10% off discount for the first order or 30% off for the subscription order, and you can get your gold kit. Uh, thank you so much to Alchemy Elements. Um, please check them out, and uh, I hope you enjoy their products.
All right, back to the show. <laughs> I had not. I was. I mean, I, I, I have to say, to be fair uh, to you, also, uh, when I first, the first thing I did in, on the pandemic, which was a study on seroprevalence, I thought I was just doing science. I didn't. I had absolutely no idea it was going to cause such a ruckus. Um, the, by the time the Great Barrington Declaration rolled around, I, yeah, I knew. I knew it was. I was going to cause trouble. I knew it was going to. I mean, I, trouble had already come to me. And I can only imagine the, the trouble that came to you with good calories. I mean, I remember reading good calories, bad calories. Uh, I forget when it came out. It was like 2007. Um, I think I read it in 2011 or something. And, and I was just stunned. I mean, it was, like, it was just like uh, everything I learned about nutrition in medical school was, was like, was, it seemed like it was completely wrong, or at least based on nothing. Um, you know, I remember that like this, uh, there was this, was it the six country study or something? When in fact, there were 48 countries and he, yeah, the, the the researcher had gotten rid of forty two of them because he didn't like the the correlation. Or, oh, well, I forget some... the details, but yeah, that but yeah. Uh, yeah, it was. I mean, I was just like I was just amazed. Well, so this is what when I first did these investigations for science, first on salt and blood pressure, and then on um, dietary fat. The um, and what I did is I said, okay, let's. I have reason to be skeptical now of these this dogma. So let's go back and see what evidence was based on. And then so you pull the papers from 10 years ago and then you look at their references and you pull those papers and you look at their references. And you, and first thing you find out is that nutrition, the referencing is terrible because people just reference papers that seem vaguely related to the subject. They don't actually bother to see if what they're referencing is, is making a point that supports the point they made in the paper. Um, but it was like, you know, the old, the idea that you know the world is standing on elephants that are standing on elephants or turtles that are standing on turtles i can never remember which it is you keep going down and down looking for the compelling reason to believe this and you never find it and then what did is i so as i started doing this as a journalist i became a sort of medical historian in the process um i could have been a better medical historian i admit and i could have used some professional training there but um you find that these ideas so a lot of this happened in the 70s and 80s when these dogmas set in this is true of diabetes as well and in the epilogue to the new book the rethinking diabetes i I tell a brief history of the evidence-based medicine movement because the evidence-based medicine movement was founded on this idea by researchers who went looking for the evidence. Specifically, it was um, the, that the mammograms actually prevent breast cancer fatality. And they said they expected to find it set in stone. Instead, they found it set in jello. And then they created this evidence-based medicine movement in the 70s and 80s and the 90s. And I was one of the first journalists, if not the first journalist in the United States, to write about it. But what I didn't realize then was that all these ideas had been grandfathered in about diet. And once they're grandfathered in, then the people who do what they call evidence-based reviews just do whatever they can or interpret whatever they can to conclude that the grandfathered belief is correct and you know again i i wish i write these books so that other researchers or committees you know this is a tragedy the number of obese and diabetic americans and around the world and i keep thinking maybe someday somebody will say eh, Tabs's ideas are interesting let's put together a committee of unbiased independent 
very good researchers, people understand science, to, you know, he references everything. He's got notes, 150 <laughs> pages of notes and bibliography, and, and could, again, yeah, just go back and see if he got it right. Because if he did, we have a real problem. Yeah. Well, I think I think we do actually have a real problem. So, in fact, let's let's move now to your book, because I want to I want the uh, folks to get the understand the nature of the problem um, uh, that you've identified. I think in this book about, but we we may not we may not be treating diabetes correctly, um, which is a tremendously important claim to make um, because it impacts the lives of so many people. Uh, okay. So uh, for, first, I wanted to just give uh, listeners a a very very uh, short brief like thumbnail sketch of what diabetes actually is as a disease and um, sort of what, what consequences it has for patients. Many people are listening probably know from firsthand experience or from family members. Uh, I, I myself, my dad actually died of, di uh, of a heart attack, very likely caused by his uh, long-term long, long type 2 diabetes. So I, I knew this. this is one of the reasons I decided to become a doctor in the first place was, was uh, watching my dad's experience. Um, so... Uh, uh, diabetes uh, essentially comes in two forms, um, type type 1 and type 2. They're both linked by a disorders in how our bodies process insulin. Type 1 diabetes is caused by uh, our, our, our insulin-producing cells in our pancreas, um, essentially getting, a, 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 people think it's an autoimmune attack, uh, getting destroyed. So your body can't produce insulin at all. So when you, and, and, and when uh, type 2 diabetes is caused by a, uh, it's a more complicated disease, but it's it's the the, the, very, the thumbnail sketch of it is that your body uh, doesn't respond to the insulin doses. The cells of your body doesn't respond to the insulin doses the way that normal 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 healthy bodies do. Uh, the the role of insulin itself is really important. Um, insulin, uh, what it does is it sends a signal to your cells that it's time to like take the sugar that uh, and 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 like to, uh, get 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 all the sugar that's floating around your body and uh, incorporate it into cells the sugar then gets gets turned into energy that can be used immediately or later um but insulin is the key that unlocks the door to the cell so that the sugar can enter the cell um so in type 1 diabetes when insulin is lacking and someone eats a a, a, a sugary meal or 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 lot of high carb meal carbs are turned into sugar um, then uh, you end up with very, very high levels of sugar floating around that can cause, you know, diabetic comas. Um, type 2 diabetes, um, the, you, you, you may actually have a lot of insulin floating around, but your cells don't respond to it. So then the sugar floats around the, your bloodstream without actually your cells uptaking it, causing all kinds of problems, uh, in, including potentially diabetic coma, if, if, but, but more commonly, um, a, a whole host of, of longer-term problems, including diabetic retinopathy, can, can lead uh, it's a leading it can lead to blindness, um, uh, end-stage renal disease, your kidneys failing, uh, heart disease, a whole host of like terrible chronic conditions. Um, so, so diabetes is it's and a lot of this uh, was worked out over over the course of centuries, uh, but, but certainly by the this picture, I think by the early part of the 20th century, we kind of knew the basics of what I've just said, right? Um. I mean, kind of, but one of the ways you described it, it, it uh, was reflective of the way the medical community, basically what I'm writing in the book, which is how the medical community came to think of these diseases um, based on the inadequate technology and knowledge of and basically at the 1920s. And as the 
understanding of the disease has changed and the mechanisms and insulin signaling and all the things that insulin does in the human body and insulin resistance and the therapy that was based on this insulin deficiency model never changed. They barely changed. I'm going to use as we talk, I'm going to be always be a little bit hyperbolic because I'm going to try and save. <laughs> you know, you could, there Are should you capable be... right there? Yeah, I'm not sure you're capable. We'll see. We'll see if I can induce you to do that. Um, actually, why, why don't we start with like the, like the, the, your book starts with a description of what, uh, how physicians in the 19th century managed diabetes because they didn't have it much of this background. They didn't know about insulin. The, uh, they, they, uh, and yet they, they hit upon a diet that seemed to, or, or, or therapy, I should say, that, that seemed to work. Okay, uh, so, and I'm going to just give a little context there, too. Today, the estimate from the CDC is 30 million Americans suffer with that and have been diagnosed with diabetes, and other nine, eight, nine million are undiagnosed. So, in general, maybe one in every nine uh, adults, at least, walking around in America is diabetic, has diabetes. Um, back in the 19th century, this was a vanishingly rare disease. I mean, a doctor, if he wasn't, uh, if he was in a major urban hospital, he might see a few cases, a uh, case every year or so. Um, today, in some hospital systems like the VA system, it's one patient in every four has diabetes. Back then, it was maybe one patient in, like I said, a some hospitals would see uh, one or no patients a year. Uh, even I had the records from Massachusetts General Hospital, that, which opened in 1825. They had years in the first half of the 19th century where they saw no patients. Now, yeah, the doctors who treated this, which might be a doctor who saw two or three patients, like the one who started this dietary therapy, saw three patients in his life. And he wrote a pamphlet about how he treated it in the second and the third and the second successfully. Um, they knew that there were sort of two general types of diabetes. There was this kind that struck kids young, struck young in children and killed quickly the acute form. And there was another type that tended to strike older, heavier adults that associated with age and obesity that seemed chronic. Except by the time these people were diagnosed, they weren't doing blood tests. They couldn't do blood tests. They, by the time you were diagnosed, you had these severe symptoms of diabetes, which were you had lost some weight, maybe a lot of weight. You were hungry all the time. You were thirsty all the time. You were peeing all the time. Um, and so by the time they were diagnosed, the condition of the two patients were similar. Excuse me while I turn off my phone. See if I can. Oh, so, actually, just one is... note while you're doing that. Um, it's interesting that uh, that the diabetes type two diabetes is now a worldwide condition. A lot of poor countries, which have gotten richer, especially rich richer people in poor countries, diabetes has become a, a, a major source of morbidity. And well, this is. Yeah, we talk about diabetes epidemics or the diabetes epidemic worldwide. And the numbers that I quote and others quote come from the World Health Organization. It's like 100 million people worldwide in 1980 and 400 million by 2015, so a fourfold increase. The greatest increases were in the poorest countries, which are interesting. Um, the president of the World Health Organization back in 2017 described the situation worldwide as a slow motion disaster. 
And she actually, she gave a prediction for the likelihood that public health organizations like the WHO would rein this in. I mean, not even, not reverse it, just rein in the epidemic so that the numbers stopped getting worse. And the prediction was essentially she had zero confidence, which is never going to happen. Things were just yeah. going to get worse. Um, so, so let's get back to that 19th century doctor. So yeah. three patients, the second one worked. What did, what did, what, what did they do? So the second them. one, he decided, since they're diagnosing it, you've got these symptoms, and then you diagnose it by sugar in the urine, polyuria. Um, and back then, they tasted the urine. If the urine or their assistant did have had an assistant. Um, so if the urine tasted sweet, that confirmed the diabetes diagnosis. He decides, uh, well, sweetness is from, like, plants, so this person's not metabolizing the plants he's consuming. So let's give him a basically a, a plant-free diet, and he recommends it's a, it's a fatty, rancid meat. It's mostly what is, and maybe some green vegetables. And this guy, uh, the army colonel, gets better. And his symptoms go away, and he sends him home. And the guy actually ended up living another 12 years, if I'm remembering correctly. And uh, Rollo, the doctor, British army surgeon writes a pamphlet about it that he circulates to people and he says look he also tried it on a general who reversed his symptoms but kept falling off the diet which was a sort of common thing you'd think i eat this way until i get better this is we still think like that and then i can go back to eating the way i always did and so Rollo writes his pamphlet, he circulates it around England and says, look, try this. We've never been able to reverse this disease before. If you have a patient who has this disease, give it a try and write me and let me know. This is how medicine spread before clinical trials. And doctors write back a few dozen and he publishes their comments and further editions of his pamphlet. And they say, it seems to work. It's pretty remarkable. We can actually control this disease, even in children which would be type one if they adhere strictly to the diet. They never did. And in fact, the doctors didn't really see the reason to adhere to it either because they kept hoping they could cure it. By the mid-19th century, this is a standard of care for diabetes therapy. So every major diabetes authority of the mid-19th century, basically they become authorities because they could treat it using what they called the animal diet. They got rid of the rancid meat and just used sort of fatty meat. Um, a French doctor got involved and he said, you know, you could use a lot of butter and vegetables and because the French were even then cared more about their cuisine than the British and the Americans. Um, and it's, you know, the French, the Germans, the Italians, the English. If you find a textbook on diabetes for a monograph on diabetes from the 19th century, and which I did, and they're always, they're pushing this animal diet. Towards the end of the century, they start pushing more and more fat in the diet. By that time, they've realized that protein, too, the amino acids and protein can be converted into glucose by the liver into carbohydrate. And so some people with type 1 have trouble tolerating the protein, so they're pushing more and more fat. And by the early 20th century, the idea is you get patients with, because they come in having lost weight, and if they have type 1 diabetes, they might already be emaciated and weak, and you want to get as many calories in them as possible, but you don't want them to eat anything with carbohydrates in it so that you replace the carbs with fat. It is, in fact, what we would call ketogenic diet today. And for 
patients with type 2 diabetes, it kept them alive indefinitely. Um, patients with type 1 who require insulin one way or the other, and they didn't, insulin wasn't, insulin therapy wasn't an Initiated in 1920 like, something. 22, yeah. The um, they were they could be kept alive longer with these high fat animal diets, but they you couldn't keep them alive indefinitely. And then there was a seven year period where a starvation diet came in, pushed by a Harvard doctor. Um, you don't want to do too much research, by the way, if you're a Harvard graduate in this field, because you just find one Harvard doctor after another thinking they could do science because they went to Harvard or they're teaching at Harvard and they have no clue what they're doing. Um, anyway, and then insulin therapy comes in in 1922 and everything changes. Actually, I should... Beginning in 1920, two researchers at the University of Michigan, Louis Newberg and Robert Mar Phil Marsh, uh, published papers in Michigan saying we've used this high-fat animal diet on, you know, first at 70 patients, and then they published another with uh, 150. Keep This is, again, how medicine was done preclinical trials. You just published your clinical experience and discuss, and they said this diet seems to keep People seem to thrive on this diet. This is 1920s, so uh, uh, this is after the discovery of insulin. And actually no, after this is unfortunately coincidental with the discovery of insulin. Okay. So as soon as insulin is discovered, uh, it's a miracle drug, right? It's the first miracle drug we really ever had. It could keep these patients with type 1 diabetes. Not only could it keep them alive indefinitely, it could resuscitate them from the brink of death. So you could have patients who, you know, remember they had instituted the starvation therapy. So you might have a 15-year-old girl who weighs 40 pounds who's days away from death and you start injecting insulin into her and within days she's walking around, she's filling out, she looks alive. It's like they really these doctors felt like that they had you know, resurrected them was a biblical terminology they'd use. Um, the catch is as soon as you start giving people insulin, so one of the things insulin does, as you mentioned, is facilitates glucose uptake in the cells. So it lowers blood sugar. And now you create the disorder of hypoglycemia, low blood sugar, which can also be deadly. Back Beautiful. in the 20s, they called it insulin shock or insulin overdose because it was a response to the insulin. It was a disease that didn't exist or a condition that didn't exist until they invented insulin mm. therapy. And then it was an immediate complication of the disorder. And now you have to give people carbs. You have to get your patients who haven't been eating these foods. Now you have to tell them to eat these foods. I mean, so that like they... people who, uh, who uh, the type 1 diabetics that I've, uh, many, I've known many in my life, they carry around cookies with them or something just in case. Well, that was, that was you know, the issue was um, cookies and candies. Uh, it was one reason why this guy, Elliot Jocelyn, never believed that sugar could be. Elliot Jocelyn was a leading diabetes specialist in the world by the 1920s. He had opened yeah, the first leading textbook, right? Yeah, his text, it's still the seminal textbook in the field is Jocelyn's Diabetes. Um, the uh, 
Yeah, he said one of the reasons you refuse to believe that sugar, the sucrose that could in, in sugar sweetened beverages could cause diabetes is because if you have somebody going into hypoglycemic shock from insulin, you could rescue them by giving them candy or orange juice or so hypoglycemic shock. You've taken too much insulin, so the insulin causes your cells to uptake the sugar that you already have floating around. Uh, you don't have enough sugar floating around, so now uh, your your you go your brain doesn't get the sugar it needs for its high energy needs, and you go into the shock or whatever you go if you go into yeah. the shock, um, and you give uh, you give them a little bit of uh, candy and they recover. Makes sense. And give them a little, yeah. Um, not all of them. A lot of them still died from insulin therapy. But even that's again, you have this book. That's a simplistic view of what's happening. So again, one of the the one way to think of what I did in this book, and to some extent, good calories, bad calories. Imagine if our understanding of diabetes and the relationship with drugs and diet and the mechanisms and everything is a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle. Okay, so if you have that jigsaw puzzle, if you put it all together, you see everything clearly, you understand everything. In the 1900s, 1920s, when these physicians are coming to very long-lasting conclusions about how to treat the disease and the mechanisms involved. They have maybe 30 or 40 or 50 pieces of the puzzle available, and they might be all in one corner, they might be scattered throughout the puzzle, and then they say from these, and they don't realize that they only have 40 or 50 pieces. They think they've got most of what you can know about it because they have no idea what they don't know. Um, and so they come to these conclusions based on that. Today, I'm assuming that we have, because we can go back in time, we have Google Books and internet repositories and our library systems that'll get us any article we wanted in the world. And we can see maybe 900, 850 of the pieces. So you can get a much different, you can get a much fuller perspective with your retrospectoscope. <laughs> than they could at the time and but, you know, even even there there's still a, a possibility in fact likelihood of you you, you know this, this illusion that you have knowledge you don't have like for, i don't know how many pieces aren't known about well that's you can this is yeah, i was just talking to a medical ethicist about this yesterday and it's it's you know rumsfeld so with the what we think we don't know and what we don't know we don't know, the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns, and you can never... So one of the bedrock rules of science is, in effect, to... Well, Feynman in that cargo cult uh, science uh, commencement address said, you know, the first famously, the first principle of science is you must not fool yourself and you're the easiest person to fool. So you got to remember that because you don't know what you don't know. And whatever it is you don't know could is very likely to turn out to refute whatever it is you think you know, and so you have to hold your ideas very tentatively. I mean, I, th I think it's interesting to because uh, in the context of science, that, of course, that makes complete sense. Um, and and but in the context of medicine, you get you got you have a patient in front of you that has is suffering in this particular way. Uh, you think you 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 have to apply the ideas that you 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 know now, even if there's uncertainty around them, to give the best possible advice. Um, but at the same time, like you 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 uh, if you dogmatically hold to that view, you're going to end up hurting a lot of patients. Well, that that's that's 
the trick, and I mean, there's a balance you have to hit in science also, in pure science. But that's the issue. It's like you've, you've got to come to a decision about what the best thing to do is. You've got to diagnose it. You're making... You know, you're making a bet that you've got the correct diagnosis, and then you're doing a risk-benefit analysis of what the best therapy is, and then you have to convince the patient that you've got both of those. So it helps to at least uh, uh, exude a little bit of certainty when you're doing this, because no patient wants to hear, oh, you know, I don't know, I mean, I think it could be this, and I think we could treat it with that, and I have no idea what the long-term consequences are, but let's give it a try. You know, and they immediately go and find a doctor who says, you've got X and we're going to treat it with A and you're going to be fine, son. And the yeah. problem is people who act like that and all the pressure in medicine is to do that. You then start to believe your certainty. And you bring it to science, right? You, you take the, the I mean, potentially therapeutic benefit of, of overconfidence in medicine. And then because you're a fantastic doctor and everyone loves you, you go to science in the area, in some area where you have supposedly have some expertise and bring that same ethos of over, overconfidence and dismissal of alternative ideas to the scientific realm, which is entirely inappropriate. Yeah. And I, again, it's just for you, the listeners, what I'm writing about over 150 years is what you experienced and everyone else experienced in the COVID epidemic over like a year and a half. So all these issues are baked into both processes, both situations, but yours was condensed into this incredibly intense period. And I'm writing about what's happened over, you know, a lengthy so, period of time. So let's, let's, let's go back to Newberg and Marsh, these University of Michigan doctors uh, who land on a diet land on this diet right right as around the time the insulin is coming or this essentially the 19th century consensus this uh this sort of high fat uh you can eat to, to satiety you're not trying to starve yourself kind of diet and, and it's and it works in the 19 in 1920s it's just like it did in the 19th century again they didn't they don't have long-term evidence for you know one of the things that happened again the, the only thing one of my favorite sayings and relevant to this is um, uh, Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. He's got this phrase, Y-C-A-T-I, W-Y-S-I-A-T-I, what you see is all there is. And what they saw, they would have their patients come into the clinics, the patients were near death, they would try and uh, rescue them from whatever, you know, immediate dangers there were, and then they would put them on their diet. And once they stabilized the disease and their sugar, their urine was clear of sugar. They called it desugarizing the urine. Then they would let them go and you would just assume, I, I mean, in some cases, the patients would live nearby and they would, you know, check in every six months or every year, or write letters to the doctor and others. They might never see them again. So they were making decisions based on what they were seeing in the clinics over the course of like two weeks or a month. Um, the diet seemed to work. Uh, but they start publishing in 1921. Insulin's discovered in the fall of 1921. Insulin therapy is initiated at the University of Toronto in January 1922. In March 1922, it's they publish their results. It's a miracle drug. I mean, people, kids near the brink of death just get better. And this, people lose interest in diet. It's like we have a drug. Again, we see this happening today with GLP-1 agonists, Wegovy and, and semaglutide. 
and obesity. It's like, we have a drug. We don't have to listen to a talk about diet ever again. Um, the doctors have made it easier for the doctors. And what they found, and again, now I have all the literature that back then, if you were a physician trying to think scientifically about this problem, you had access to, um, you know, whatever journals you subscribe to in the whatever language you read, because the lingua franca of medicine back then was still German. Um, and, uh, you know, very limited information. But what you could see in the literature now is the doctor saying, look, it's just particularly with kids. It's very hard to figure out the balance of insulin versus diet, because if you give a little too much insulin, a little too few carbohydrates, you kill them with hypoglycemia. And hypoglycemia is an extraordinary burden for these children to live with. If you give too little insulin and too much carbohydrates, then you they have you do, high know. they have sugar in the urine. They still are diabetic with all the problems that ensue. So let's just let them eat what they want and give them more and enough insulin to cover it. It's easier. They feel better. They're happier. By the 1930s, this is known as a liberal diet. And the German and Swedish uh, clinicians are writing about, like, you know, you can't imagine it. It's a kid with type 1 diabetes who's getting to eat ice cream, cake at a birthday party. And the euphoria is worth any amount of, you know, trouble that might be coming down the road. But they don't know what's coming down the road. That's something they can't see, right? So that was one of the, they should have been a known unknown. Um, it was mostly an unknown unknown. And what's coming down the road is this horrible wave of diabetic complications. So they'd never seen, especially severe patients with type 1 diabetes, these kids had never lived long enough to see the long-term consequences of type 1 diabetes. Now with insulin therapy, you start to see the long-term consequences of type 1 diabetes on a carb-rich diet with insulin therapy. And it's all the things you were describing, the, the neuropathies and nerve damage and amputations and the retinopathies and blindness and arteriosclerosis, not just atherosclerosis, but sclerotic sclerosis throughout the arteries in their bodies. I mean, they're getting heart attacks and strokes. And if a kid is diagnosed at, say, 12, and gets insulin at 13, and it saves his or her life, but then only lives 15 years before these complications kill this child. That child is still dying at like 25, 28. It's a tragic death. And by yeah. the 1930s, the diabetes community is overwhelmed with these deaths, and they have no idea what's the cause of it. They have a dogma, which is let them eat carbohydrates, cover it with insulin. So they assume they know that blood sugar is probably related to um, poorly controlled blood sugar is probably related to the consequences they're seeing these terrible complications. But they don't know if it's because the kids aren't using enough insulin or they're not using insulin properly or the insulin isn't dosed long enough or all these other variables that they had wrestled with. And it never crosses their mind that it could be the insulin therapy itself could be contributing to this. Um, you know, too much of a hormone can be a problem as well as too little. And they thought of insulin as replacing the hormone that was missing. 
but there are all kinds of issues with how it's used that we could discuss. Um, so anyway, they, they, for the next 30 years through World War II, they're assuming that better blood sugar control will minimize complications. And then they're assuming that the way you get better blood sugar control is by better use of insulin or longer lasting insulins or shorter acting insulins or, and the hypoglyce, oral hypoglycemic drugs come in then post-World War II. Um, maybe these oral drugs will help. Like um, metformin, things like that. Uh, and metformin has been around um, yeah. since 1920s, but it's, they really have no idea. And they never questioned the diet dogma. And then when they start doing clinical trials in the 1970s. I mean, like the, the idea is that the patients, um, if you tell them to restrict their diet, they're going to they're gonna view that as an imposition. Um, but if you just give them this, uh, you know, some dose of insulin and tell them to take it, they don't have to think about it. They can just live their life as normal. You just take the drug and you'll be, you'll be fine. Of course, they're not going to be fine, but but because there are some longer term consequences for type one. For type two, of course, it's even, it's that, that, that advice, that becomes the dogma also, right? Well, and that's because they're not really differentiating between these diseases. So type two, I mean, here's the other way the science gets, uh, goes off the rail based on what they can see. So 1989 in Germany, Oscar Minkowski famously realizes that the pancreas is responsible for, if you remove the pancreas from a dog and keep that dog alive, that dog will become diabetic. 1889, right? Yeah. 1889, yeah. So they, they think of it from Minkowski's great breakthrough onward that it's a pancreatic disorder. Um, when Banting and Best at the University of Toronto isolate insulin from pancreatic tissues and show that it lowers blood sugar and use it successfully as therapy now with the pancreatic disorder of insulin deficiency. And the natural thing to do if you don't have enough insulin, we're going to give insulin back. So they're just adding back what's missing. This was sort of the therapeutic uh, philosophy of endocrinology. And they end up believing this ever since, in effect. Um, by 1960, the, the catch is they can't measure hormone levels in the bloodstream. They have no way to do it. So they have the science of endocrinology. They know they've identified endocrine hormones. These are hormone, uh, endocrine organs that secrete hormones into the bloodstream, the pancreas, the testes, the uterus, the, um, uh, the adrenal glands, and they can't actually measure the hormone level in the bloodstream. So they, they just assume that the problem is with the glands and secreting too much or not enough. And then in 1960, these a uh, 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 couple of researchers, Solomon Burson and Rosalind Yallow, together do a report they've created this radioimmunoassay that allows hormone levels to be measured in the bloodstream for the first time. And lo and behold, type 2 diabetes is a disorder of insulin resistance and too much insulin rather than insulin deficiency. By this time, all they've also realized that the problem is with the liver, not the pancreas in type 2 diabetes, and 95% of all cases are type 2. So the therapy is based on the idea that this is a pancreatic deficiency disorder, and by 1960, of insulin, by 1960, it's 
clear that it's a much uh, more the liver is a problem organ the hormones involved are not just insulin but insulin this counter regulatory hormone glucagon that it's a disorder of insulin resistance too much insulin in the system because the pancreas is pumping out insulin trying to make up for the cell's resistance to it and it doesn't change their therapy the therapy is if somebody has type 2 diabetes give them insulin there's a little detail you had in your book which just caught my attention about uh, these quarter century victory models like so in so, so jocelyn uh, who's the you know like the the essentially the, the the main figure in the mid twentieth century in diabetic treatment? He runs a clinic, and uh, the, the 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 one he gives the kind of advice you've been describing. Um, and some people, a few of them, do really well. Twenty five years they live, and they get a medal for for having having lived uh, lived through this therapy for twenty five years. Well, so this is. Um... Yeah, Jocelyn, Jocelyn opened the first diabetes clinic in the United States in Boston. And so by 1916, he had seen a thousand patients. Other doctors might have seen five, ten, a hundred. So he wrote a textbook based on what he knew on the thousand cases. And this is Jocelyn's textbook. And it's now in its 14th printing. Um, the uh, Jocelyn was the god of diabetes in the United States. And I mean, there are a lot of issues with John. He was a wonderful doctor. He's exactly what you want your physician to be, maybe a little too stern, but otherwise terrible scientists. Nobody ever trains these people how to think scientifically. It's like you need a mentor. You need to grow up in a laboratory where you're mentored and it's you know, beaten into you. It's the culture that you grow up in. Um, so yeah, his by the 1940s, his the clinic starts giving out these 25 uh, quarter century victory medals to diabetic patients who have had, um, basically whose bodies are no, you know, as healthy as no blindness, no retinopathies, no neuropathies, no arteriosclerosis, no high blood pressure, none of the symptoms by any criteria. And they assume, Jocelyn assumes that when they give out these medals, the people who were going to have done worse will be the people who got their diabetes pre-insulin and in the 1920s and were still kind of giving, being given this high-fat diet because Jocelyn had decided that the high-fat diet was probably the cause of the arteriosclerosis and the heart disease and all this other bad stuff. So... They calculate how many um, of these 25th century victory medals they've given out. And by this time, Jocelyn is in his you know, late 80s and his son is involved in this analysis. And it turns out that they were given that most of the people who got these medals were the people who got the high fat diets. It's the exact opposite of what Jocelyn um, predicted. But again, by this point, these. these Sciences like the groupthink issue, they, it becomes resistant to negative evidence. I mean, they have no clinical trial evidence because the, the medicine hasn't embraced clinical trials yet, randomized controlled trials. But even when they published articles, and they, in, they published an article on this in which they meant, didn't mention the fat thing at all, and Jocelyn's textbook in the chapter written by his son, co-written by his son, they mentioned that, isn't this weird, that the healthiest people were the ones who were 
diagnosed in like the late 19 teens or the 20s and started their lives on very high fat diets. I actually start the first chapter with a case study from the Mayo Clinic that was published in 1951 by these two Mayo doctors. So it was presented to the clinic as the case study in one of their, you know, grand rounds. And then they wrote it up and published in the Mayo Clinic bulletin. And it's, they had a patient who actually had stuck to his diet for 30 years. They'd never seen this before. So this is a guy, a farmer from Montana, who's diagnosed with diabetes in 1921, um, pre-insulin. He's put on this sort of starvation diet first. It doesn't really help. He comes back in 1922 after insulin therapy has been initiated. So they put him on insulin therapy and they put him on this high fat carbohydrate-restricted diet that these guys at Michigan had developed, Newburgh and Marsh, and they send them home to Montana, and they never hear from him again. And in 1951, he shows up. They, they might have invited him to come back. They might have realized that this patient was still alive, and it's like he's been living in a time capsule. He hasn't been seeing doctors, so he hasn't changed his diet at all. He's eaten exactly what they've told him to eat in 1922, Butter. which was no carbs, green Thank vegetables you. boiled three times, fatty meat, lots of butter, and he's in perfect physical condition. So they've never seen anyone stick to the diet for 30 years, and they've never seen a patient in this good condition, having stayed there for 30 years. And the irony or the joke is by the end of the case study, they said, yeah, but, you know, dietary fashion had changed dramatically in diabetes. And now we're giving patients high carb diets and telling them to take a lot more insulin. So we fed him a high carb diet. He ate bread for the first time in 30 years. And we sent him home a happy man. And they have no idea, you know, that they might have just killed this guy. Yeah. Like done I the mean, opposite you of what... Um, it's it uh, so one one thing you mentioned there is this idea of of, of star starving. Uh, that, like there, around this time, there was also this like, well, we gotta we gotta like make people thin, and so restricting calories is a really important thing as well. So you have to you, you have to you have to be. I, mean, I, I know I know this because my my dad was diagnosed with diabetes in the late seventies uh, in the United States, uh, all through the eighties. He, he ate a starvation di high carb starvation diet. Like he had, uh, like when growing up, uh, you know, it was like oatmeal in the morning, uh, toast and bread, toast, uh, in, in the, in the, for, for, for lunch. And then, uh, rice and dal. Dal is like this, you know, this, uh, uh, uh legume that uh, Indians eat, um, for, for dinner. Uh, that was it. That was, that was my dad's diet for, for the last uh, decade and a half of his life. Yeah. The, um. I mean, there are a lot of, again, multiple issues. One is you don't want to overburden the pancreas, and the bigger the body, the harder the pancreas has to work. Again, this is when all diabetes was perceived as a pancreatic deficiency disease. So if you semi-starve people, they won't have sugar in their urine. They'll be hungry all the time. And if they're children, remember one of the symptoms of this disease, you're hungry all the time because you are voraciously starving. So now you don't allow them to eat. They literally torture them. But the idea is if they could keep their weight low enough, their diabetes, they won't kill them. They won't get diabetic ketoacidosis. And, and so you had these patients, like I said, 15-year-olds who weighed 40 pounds. 
uh, when you read the German research, they, I mean, this was ironically, the Germans in the 1930s were saying that they couldn't imagine that Americans, only Americans would have enough faith in their doctors to do something this crazy. And then in post-19, post-World War II, you had doctors saying, yeah, looking back on it, the patients reminded us of these, you know, the prisoners from Auschwitz when it was liberated because they, they, you know, they, they'd never seen people this thin. Um, this philosophy kept on. But the other thing is diabetes associated type 2 with overweight. So the idea was you didn't want patients to get overweight and obese, but you wanted to give them, let them eat as much carbs as they can and give them more insulin to cover it. And I discussed this idea that insulin is a fattening hormone which is, is undeniable. Um, so you give them a hormone that literally makes people fatter. And then you tell them if they're getting fatter, you have to cut back on your calories and exercise. So you're giving them a hormone that's going to make them fatter, and you don't want them to get fatter because that's going to make their diabetes worth, or at least so you believe. So now you tell them they have to exercise and eat less, end up eating like your father did. Yeah. And it doesn't help. But they never stopped to think, even though by the 1930s was pretty clear, 1940s was very clear that this one, one thing that insulin does, you said it facilitates glucose uptake in cells. It also tells fat cells to take up fat and hold on to it. It inhibits the release of fat from fat cells. So one of the ultimate arguments I'm making in my book is that you can't give people insulin and expect them not to gain weight. And that that conflict alone is enough to question the therapeutic philosophy behind all this. Yeah, I think back on my dad. My dad actually also was on insulin, though he was type 2. So uh, he must have been hungry constantly. Like he was actually quite grumpy the last decade and a half of his life. Um, I mean, I, I don't know if it was because of, you know. Well, this yeah, is one of the, so the belief system is that nobody can stay on a diet. This is... You know, they, before we got on, I mentioned that they, you create an intellectual sort of construction by which you can justify everything you're doing. So by the 1960s, 70s, or even in, from the 1920s onward, the idea is nobody's going to stay on a diet. And the idea is the diet has got to be a semi-starvation diet. If you want to restrict your weight, especially if you're getting insulin, then you, <clears throat> you better basically be starving yourself so your body can't find enough fat to get it into the fat cells and keep it there. And the fact that people wouldn't adhere to that, the famous study done in the 1940s, the University of Michigan of starving, healthy, conscientious objectors, like yeah, nobody can tolerate yeah. starvation. That, but nobody... that, 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 just for a just quick study, that's, that, that's the study run by Ansel Keys, who was the villain of good calories, bad calories. Yeah, I don't like to think of him as the villain, but he did an enormous amount of harm, probably with all the best of intentions. But, but and just, just to, I mean, maybe listeners haven't heard about this, but they they ought to know about this. The the, the study was, uh, I think, like Quakers uh, volunteered during World War II because they they were pacifists and they couldn't mm -hmm. volunteer to go to war, and they felt guilty, so they volunteered to uh, allow themselves to be starved. You know, like. 400 calories a day or something. Yeah, this is a joke. It wasn't 400 calories a day. It was 1,600 calories a day. So the idea was when we liberate Europe, eventually we're going to liberate Europe and we're going to be dealing with 
massive starvation, hunger, famine everywhere we go because wars decimate food systems, if nothing else, and they kill the people who otherwise would be out in the fields, you know, uh, uh, reaping the, the 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 food. So they fed them, in effect, a exactly the diet we're supposed to eat today. So it was a low-fat uh, no butter, no, you know, just uh, root vegetables. Uh, well, I remember, one, one, one detail I remember you wrote, included in your book, um, that the, the, these are like nice young men in their like what, yeah. late teens or, or early 20s or the whatever. 20s, early 30s, yeah. Yeah, and, and so they're, and they, but they're like, on this diet, they're really grumpy. They follow each other around, convinced that the others are cheating on it. Uh, well, this <laughs> I mean, is... Yeah, yeah, it's driving them. I mean, and very quickly, by the way, it doesn't take a lot of time for the men. You know, today, we'd say they were hangry. They're obsessed with food. You know, they're thinking about food all the time. They're like salivating in their, their dorms at night, looking at photos of food. The, the, the few of them, some of them got a hold of chewing gum and they chew like 40, 50 sticks of chewing gum a day. Um, they had to institute a buddy system. So if they left the campus and went around town, they had to go with a buddy because otherwise they would cheat. And at least one of them self-mutilated himself, like cut off his own fingers accidentally with an axe trying to get out of the study. Um, yeah, the message was nobody can live with hunger. But like I said, the stunning aspect of this is when you actually look at what they were feeding them, it was 1,600 calories a day. 1,600. It's exactly what your doctor would recommend to you as a weight loss diet if you went in. And, and these are kids who weighed 150 pounds. If you went in and weighed 250 pounds, they would tell you eat 1,600 calories a day or 1,800 a day. And nobody ever thinks, well, wait, if this makes a lean person voraciously hungry and incapable of staying on and what why should it be any different for somebody who's struggling with obesity and then the other tragic amusing thing is when they the study was ended and they refed them first of all they were crazy voraciously hungry so they had to like do it in stages they all gained more fat than they began with they got not just did they get end up heavier but they ended up with a greater percentage of their body is they're, I mean, I saw some pictures from this uh, study because after I read your book, I went and looked back at the because you know you go to Stanford Library and find a copy of of the thing, um, mm -hmm. and the, the pictures of them are like they look like they're just completely gaunt. That you can see their ribs, they're like it is like from so from third world some third world country, like start you know uh, uh, entirely malnourished. Um, yeah, I know. and I mean they lose all. Um, I mean there are all kinds of sort of chronic consequences of starvation too and then one the, you know you could assess one of the assumptions always particularly in obesity is that if you do the same thing to lean people and obese people and, and with lean people it might make them starving and they'll lose their sex drive and any real drive to move or live uh, they'll get depressed they'll be angry all the time they'll sleep poorly their blood pressure will you know go up all kinds of problems that won't happen to obese people because they have all this excess fat to burn, so you could somehow siphon it out of their fat tissue. And, I mean, there are bioche biochemical processes that will convert the fat stores that you have into energy. Um, so, and yeah. it's all, um, it's the extent, the degree of 
inadequate, substandard, bad science that was perpetrated by these people. Um, and in diabetes, again, too, we didn't, you know, one of the issues getting to consensus. Um, well, so, so can, I, can I ask about, so like in the 1980s, uh, the American Diabetic Association essentially embraces this high carb, high insulin approach. Well, um, so it, they, they've been accepting of it. Um, 1965 is the first time they ever published uh, nutrition recommendations, and it's a group of physicians, and they say, well, we really don't know what's right, but if your patients have high triglycerides, which is most patients with poorly controlled diabetes do, then you should feed them a low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet, and if they have high cholesterol, you might consider this low-fat thing that the heart doctors are buying into. By 1971, so in the 1960s, this idea that we should eat a low-fat diet and then the cause of heart disease is saturated fat, raising LDL cholesterol that we believe today, that was began to be solidified in the 1960s, even though clinical trial after clinical trial failed to support it or failed to, to demonstrate it. And then in 1971, one very influential physician gets on a the this committee of the ADA and then publishes an article, the nutrition guidelines saying, hey, lo and behold, carbohydrates aren't a problem. They don't raise blood sugar and diabetes, patients with diabetes should eat low fat, high carb diets. They should get 50% of their calories from the one macronutrient they cannot metabolize safely without pharmaceutical help. I mean, it's crazy. If you just think of it like that, and the New York Times runs a story, you know, ADA, new guidelines, carbs aren't bad after all. Uh, it's reaffirmed in 79 because the heart disease people are doing these studies that are not confirming their hypothesis, by the way, but they're very expensive trials. And patients with diabetes are at high risk of heart disease. And the heart disease people are saying this is... First, they're saying this is possibly caused by fat in the diet raising cholesterol, and then they're saying it's possibly caused by saturated fat in the diet raising LDL cholesterol, and then they're testing that hypothesis. And as the hypothesis is failing the test, they're saying it's definitely caused <laughs> by saturated fat raising cholesterol. And the ADA people just go along with it. It's like, well, if our, our patients are going to die of heart disease, likely, so they also should eat saturated fat, even if it means we now have to feed them all these carbohydrates and give them drugs. That's, by the way, my, what my dad died of. He died of a heart attack. He had two of them, one um, when he was 48, and another, the second one when he was 56, uh, died of the second heart attack. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's the best way this was described to me. There's a journalist... Uh, used to be a chef, became a journalist named Ross Wallen, um, said he was diagnosed, I think it was 2016 or 2018, when he was 36 years old with type 1 diabetes. And he has, um, you know, like everyone, when you're diagnosed with diabetes, you're just thrust into it. Like suddenly you are in the world of diabetes and, and everything is new to you. You have no biases, no um, preconceived opinions. And his doctor explains to him, okay, so this is a problem of carbohydrate metabolism. Your body can no longer metabolize carbohydrates. Uh, you need insulin to do that. You lack insulin, so we're going to give you insulin. And here's how you're going to inject it. And, and he says, wait, 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 wait. What you're telling me is that carbohydrates are now poison to me. 
and I should eat the poison. And well, carbohydrates are poison. Insulin is the antidote. I should eat the poison and take the antidote. Yep. And the doctor has never thought of it like that. The doctor just thinks, well, you're not going to want to avoid eating the poison. So now you can eat it anyway. In fact, you should get half the calories in your diet from the poison. Just make sure you take the antidote. And, but, okay, so I, I'm focused on the ADA because, um, like, one of the ways that the consensus is built is you have large organizations with, you know, sort of authoritative sounding names, American Diabetic Association, you know, uh, we, we say X is true. And now it's almost impossible for regular doctors to contradict it, even if their clinical experience runs the other direction. Forget about scientists. And um, this is it. So you have these organizations that are started originally as, I mean, they're almost like clubs for physicians who specialize in a particular field. Um, they decide that what they're doing is very important, which it is. So they get bigger and bigger. They start raising money from outside organizations, including drug companies, which are more than happy to, you know, help these organizations disseminate information about how to use the drugs and use them properly. Um, they become perceived as, you know, unbiased purveyors of, you know, credible information on these disease states. So the American Heart Association, most prominently, and the American Diabetes Association. And they believe that, uh, you know, they, they grow and they add administrative layers and they think we should do more and more and we should raise more and more money and we should put that money to work. What we're going to put it to work doing is disseminating, you know, the information, how properly to care for the disease. So they start publishing these standard of care documents. The ADAs come out every January in a supplement to the Journal of Diabetes Care. So it's an entire supplement of, you know, a dozen roughly unreadable documents about how physicians should treat this disease. Um, it's very easy for one or two or three very influential physicians who are elected to these committees to influence whatever the standard of care should be. And when you put together the committees, this gets back to the groupthink idea. So let's say I want to do a committee on, on, on proper vaccine use in COVID. Well, I'm not going to, I'm going to pick somebody who's very well accepted in the field and is, which is uncontroversial. So that means that they believe what everyone else believes. So I'm going to put as a head of the committee, somebody who's believes the conventional thinking because one of the, uh, you know, a tenets of groupthink is that we think people are intelligent who believe like we do. You know, people who don't believe, like you and I like each other because we think alike. Um, the people who don't think like us, we assume that either they're not smart enough or we're not smart enough. And since the we're not smart enough is a place that nobody ever goes, we assume they aren't and we don't put them on our committees. So there'll always be lip service to getting different perspectives, but you tend not to respect people with different perspectives. So you, anyway, you just build these committees from people. Well, I you... mean, I've I've, uh, I've sat on NIH review panels. That same dynamic applies. Like you, and it's you know you have to uh, very occasionally you'll get conflict between reviewers or on some some topic. Okay, I mean you know like on on one or two review reviews. Um, 
but for the most part, like the the, the discussions are are built around the the way that everybody thinks about these topics. So if you're yeah. coming at it completely different with a different different hypothesis, you're gonna you're I mean people are gonna look like you're gonna create you're gonna you're gonna silence yourself is what you're gonna do end up doing if exactly. you are invited to be on that committee, which you generally I mean that's why if you actually if you're a research scientist and you wanted to study a different hypothesis, you would be well suited to basically bullshitting your committee and saying, give me money to do this experiment. And I don't know if in your field, but this was common in physics. You ask for money to do an experiment that you've already done. <laughs> so you could write that one up and make everyone happy. And then you could use the money to do the exper exploratory research that might come up with something completely different because nobody's going to fund you to do that because it sounds too radical and it's not part of their world. But anyway, that's the thing. You put together groups where you recapitulate everybody and again, with all best of intentions, you pick the people you respect and the people you respect to be on the committee are people who agree with you. Okay, so so Gary, uh, we've, I've taken I've taken way more than your time that I intend, intended, but I wanted to give you the last a couple of th uh, questions for the la to, to 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 leave um, with. So first, uh, uh, systematically, what can what, what can we do? Like how how can this? What like you've been studying this? Nutritionary for a while, of course, as you said, you had a history of studying um, uh, problems with physics. Um, so you've seen, a, at least from two major areas of science, the same kind of phenomenon. Um, what what can be done systematically to so that science to, to, to fix science so that it is more open to this kind of the kind of challenges that you've posed? Um, and then the second question is for patients. Like what 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 should, I mean, we probably people listening to this they're thinking, okay, there's a uh, we we've had this. Um, this high fat diet uh, that, that seemed to work, but I don't think you've taken the position in. If I'm reading the book right, at the end of the book, that we know with any certainty one way or the other. Um, so what what's a what is a patient to do with that? Okay, so let me start with the patient because that's the easier question. Um, if you have a disorder, obesity, or diabetes with obvious symptoms, high blood sugar whatever the other symptoms, you, know, you have trouble controlling your weight, your blood sugar, your blood pressure. Um, you've been struggling with this, the conventional wisdom, you've been doing exact. I mean, we were all there at some point where people who end up eating like I do are people who failed on everything else. Um, and then you say, well, let me there's got to be some other way to do this, right? Because I've been eating less and exercising. I'm hungry all the time. I'm doing exactly what you want. I, it doesn't make a damn bit of difference. And yeah, I fell off the diet, but I fell off the diet because it didn't help. So the advantage of having a disorder with symptoms, like if you have a headache, a chronic headache, you could try do whatever you read about that somebody recommends, no matter how crazy it sounds, like standing on your head in the corner for 10 minutes to see if the headache goes away. And if it does go away, you might repeat the process when it comes back and see if it goes away again. And if it goes away repeatedly, you become a zealous proponent of standing in the corner like an idiot until your headache goes away and you write books about it. And, you know, you get on the Huberman lab. Um, if... But you can do that. You can experiment. So when I wrote this book called The Case for Keto, and I explained the physiology behind it, the history, the research that you know had implicated obesity as a, a endocrine disorder of fuel partitioning, not this overeating energy balance idea. Um, 
and the message of the book is basically if you suffer from, if you're heavier than you want to be, or you can't control your blood sugar or your blood pressure, you can try this. We know that it's not harmful because this study has now been tested. This diet is probably the most well-tested diet in history. Um, there you will read stuff on, on plant-based diet websites claiming it is unhealthy. Um, but if you actually look at the clinical trials, it's fine. You can do it as an experiment. And if your symptoms go away, like the headache standing in the, you know, on your head in the corner, then you can decide whether you want to continue doing it or not. Um, that's the best I could say. It's like you can experiment. If you're lean and healthy now, there's not much you could learn by changing your diet. So you're at a disadvantage. But if you would like to be 20, 50, 100 pounds lighter, then do it. And again, the reason I wrote that particular book is if you're going to do the experiment, make sure you do it right. Because you don't want to try standing on the head in the corner and realize that you've got to have both hands in a triangle position for it to work and you had them like this. So um, you want to have the best information about how to do it right and then do it as an experiment. If you do it, I think three months is more than long enough. One month is probably enough. And the book is supposed to say, and I basically have an epilogue like this in the diabetes book, where I say, look, here are four physicians who were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, very severe, and this is how they dealt with it. And three of them embraced very low-carbohydrate ketogenic diets as a therapy, and they found it worked, including you know, one who's at the Jocelyn Diabetes Center, or Harvard, uh, uh, maybe it was uh, diabetes, um, uh, clinic at Harvard, and uh, then the third, the fourth one was at Yale, and she had she had kept her diet under control, her diabetes under control, and didn't see the need to be that extreme. Um, and then I say, look, you know, the, the goal. I don't know if the long term benefits uh, really overwhelm the risks. I think I can. There's we have more than enough evidence to know that these diets make people better in the short term. They reverse the symptoms of the disorder. They make type 1 diabetes easier to control. Um, we don't know how much harm they do because those clinical trials have never been done in type 1. We do know in type 2 diabetes that they appear to do enormous benefit. We don't know about long-term risks. Um, and that's unfortunate. So, you you know, if you do this kind of experiment, you're you're you're... Uh, making a, a risk-benefit analysis, like I'm going to risk bad things happening because I feel yeah. much better in the short term. It, that answer is, a, I mean, it strikes me as a very wise answer, in one, especially in one one way. Like we think about doctors as having all the answers, uh, when and when off, very often they don't, because the scientific basis on which they give advice is not 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 solid. Um, and uh, so what, what are we supposed to do? Like pretend that we uh, go to a doctor who pretends to know the answer and that, that makes us okay? I mean, or, or do we, are we just act more pragmatically? Like look and say, okay, what, what seems to work? Um, and I, like, you know, I think a doctor can help, like can help you understand uh, what, what the available uh, approaches are. Uh, you know, help project. So give you know. Sometimes you tell yourself stories. Okay, yeah, this you try some way and it's it's failed, and you're not convinced. You, you you take somebody to tell you, yeah, look, this has obviously failed for you. Um, 
but but that kind of pragmatic approach seems like really there's no that's the, that's really the situation we're in. We're in in a sense we're we're all adults without some guru above us that can tell us what the right thing to do exactly in this, these situations are. Uh, you know, I, I'm not I'm not arguing against going to your doctor. I'm saying that the doctors you want to go to will have a more pragmatic approach, kind of like the thing you outlined. I think that's that's the right way to think about it. well this is yeah and the the plea i make at the end of the book is is so we have two ways of treating the disease basically we had one way until insulin was discovered and that way was left behind but you could treat these are serious disorders um diabetes and obesity both and you could make the argument that they are both responses to the carbohydrate content of the diet so you can treat them by minimizing your carbohydrate consumption. Like these foods make you sick, don't eat them. Okay, that's not a diet, that's just common sense. My wife likes this advantage. I was searching for a, a way to explain this to her one day. And I said, let's say suddenly we all started turning green or not all of us, only a third of us and more in the South <laughs> than in New York City. But you know, and, and it turned out that there was a particular food or a food group that turned people green. And it would make eminent good sense to say, look, if you don't want to be green, don't eat these foods. But as long as you eat them, you're going to end up green and you're going to have to live with that. And in effect, that was the therapy for diabetes. There's a, there's a, a physician in Montreal, a very um, thoughtful, intelligent woman, uh, Evelyn Bordua Roy, who said to me when I interviewed her, she said, when I meet my patients, I say, look, I can give you pills or I could teach you how to eat. And a lot of people might say, I want the pills. But what we've realized is that the pills don't make people healthy. They make them less unhealthy. And it delays the consequences of the disease and maybe the pills a little bit longer. But if you teach people to avoid the foods that make them sick, they appear to be perfectly healthy. Like we evolved to live without these foods, so don't eat them. You don't miss them for a while, but the benefit you get from your health will be better. Anyway, I write my books for physicians and caregivers and payers and providers because I ideally, I mean, Jesus, this rethinking diabetes is not a breezy read, but I want people to understand what happened so they could say, I owe it to my patients to understand this approach. And if I'm overweight, which many physicians are, I'm pre-diabetic or diabetic, which many physicians are, maybe I should try it myself so I can counsel my patients. I could say, here are your choices. We could do it the ADA way. Or we could try this way. We could do it with the pills or we could do it with the diet. I And they'll understand the diet because these are serious disorders and patients need help. They need their physicians to support them. So um, <clears throat> fixing the science. Yeah, let's go. Let's 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 end with that. And I'll, I'll let you. That's just the, the easiest thing for last, Gary. Yeah, I mean, your guess is as good as mine, right? Because we're both in, lived through similar experiences. Um, I was taught how to think critically about science when I was reporting, starting with my very first book and the living at CERN with these physicists. I was taught by some of the best experimental scientists in the world. And my second book was about called Fusion in three years. I mean, basically, these people counseled me throughout that people how to think critically. And one of the messages I took away is I wish there was somebody as smart as they were doing what I'm doing instead of me. So I keep thinking 
on these issues where there's a huge controversy or even a small but legitimate controversy, wouldn't it be nice if there was something like a Supreme Court of Science? So bear with me. We get the dozen best experimentalists in science. Can't be theorists, by the way, because theorists, they think they know the truth. They don't have to do experiments. But these are people who have to really understand critical science. And we give them, you know, uh, assistants and, 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 and clerks. And anytime there's a controversy, the, both sides prepare the evidence. The judges can ask for more evidence, more papers. They could basically do what I did and you've done. And they would be independent. They'd have to be independent of the field in which, so you couldn't use diabetologists, diabetes specialists for diabetes. You'd have to assume these are people smart enough to get it. I don't know. This is what I keep hoping. And then you could go to them and they would say, and we have government committees that do this all the time. And then they give you know dogmatic recommendations. What these people would say is, well, this idea actually has makes a lot of sense. What we need is this experiment, and that experiment, this experiment. And once we see the results of those experiments, then we could decide what further experiments we need. So I, and, I guess, uh, you know, uh, I like the idea, except I would I would cast it not as a jury of a small number of scientists. But but of, of like the the world of science is the jury. I mean, in a, in a sense, like the pro, the fundamental problem is like the, the the social structures and funding structures set up to, to to privilege one point of view. Like the NIH is is packed with with with, with scientists who made their careers and reputations based on a, you know whatever in their narrow field is like that's that's the thing that they made their reputation on, and they control the funding. You know, to take someone like Tony Fauci, uh, who who then then controls the funding, so that if anyone wants to climb up the social hierarchy of science, they have to like satisfy a small number of people. And so, of course, they're going to try to think that way because the only way to satisfy them is. And so, if you have some idea that that like like yours, Gary, that like essentially tells people the emperor has no clothes, they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna react very negatively because. The, the 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 clothes they think they're wearing have gotten to to the very pinnacle of their career. They're they're they're, they're at Harvard. They're they're at, Har at Stanford. They're like you know publishing in top journals. Everyone thinks that they're they're really smart. Um, and and so like they're, they're, of course they're not going to support uh, an upstart that says that everything that they they based all the success on is just you know quicksand. Mm -hmm. Um, I, so I think what what's needed is a is a radical. A decentralization almost of the support. Well, but there's another issue here, right? Which is you're talking about the support. Um, once you get the support, how do you get, if 95% if of the people in the world believe that two plus two is five, and you finally get support and you demonstrate that it's actually four, you then have to get the 95% of the people to care. And while your paper comes out saying, this is one of the depressing realizations I had. In nutrition, for instance, there's a uh, David Allison at the University of Indiana sends around a, a, a nutrition, yeah. obesity, energetics newsletter every week, the latest papers and relevant to the field. And it's 150 papers a week. So one of those papers is yours that said two plus two is actually four. 
and 149 are based on the idea that it's still five. And there are maybe 1,500 papers that have already been written and accepted in the pipeline, 10 weeks that have the two plus two is five notion embedded in them. And they're going to come out in the next 10 weeks. And there are another two years of experiments that were based on the two plus two is five notion. So that's, I don't know, the 20,000 papers that they're not going to rewrite them because they read your one paper, even if it's in the New England Journal well, I, of Medicine. Well, I, I think what you're highlighting is a, is a fundamental problem of attention in science, right? So you're, you go, you're not going to, like sci science takes a long time to arrive at truth. So, I mean, that's just a fundamental, that itself is a fundamental truth, right? That, like it doesn't, minds don't change overnight. Um, but you have to create structures where minds can change. That's the problem I'm, I'm most interested in. Um, well, so here's, go ahead. Oh, no, quick, please go ahead, Gary. No, because, well, first of all, there's, you know, the minds don't change overnight. They have to die out, right? That's they the have to theory. Die. And then the younger generation comes along. My cynical take there or skeptical, realistic take is, unfortunately, if we're dealing with fields that there's very bad science being done. Um, I would someday like to write a book about, I have this theory that science reached its apex in Germany and Austria pre-World War II, and it crossed the Atlantic in fields like physics because we had this Hitler's gift, all these refugees who came over and were embraced in physics because we needed them to build bombs. So when I was writing about physics in the 80s, the elder generation were all you basically European emigres were their students. So in physics, these people were mentored in such a way that they understood the critical, skeptical approach to science that's necessary, basically Feynman's first principle, but in other fields, and in molecular biology too, because a lot of those people had been physicists, but in other fields, nutrition, obesity, where they came out of medicine, and the medical doctors, the brilliant, the medical equivalents of Einstein and Schopenhauer and Heisenberg and these people, um, this politics or not, weren't accepted. They, very few of them got jobs. I mean, a few like Hans Krebs famously, but otherwise, you know, these people, nobody wanted anything to do with this flood of Germans in our medical schools, Ivy Leagues, you know, famously so. Um, so you have this these cultures that don't function scientifically, they see their job as basically generating papers and getting awards and getting funding, but not establishing reliable knowledge. And so... Well, you know, it strikes me as like the kind of thing that you do is, is and I don't, I don't mean this in a negative way, I mean this in the most positive way possible, actually, is, is, is you're, you are a reviewer of science, like a, like a, kind of like a movie reviewer. And, but, and, you know, there, there are different kinds of reviewers. There are reviewers who are like, oh, 10 out of 10 stars, go see, you know, it's exciting. I mean, there's people like that. A lot of science writers are like that actually nowadays. Um, and it's kind of, it's kind of annoying. Um, but, the, but you're, you're like a critical reviewer. You're like the Robert, you know, the Roger Ebert of, sci of, of, of scientific reviews. I'm not sure Roger Ebert would have been my first choice, but. Pick your favorite one. The point is, like, you're, you're trying to find new things. You're trying to, like, uh, uh, get, look at the science from this particular perspective. But, like, if you had a, a, a thicker set of scientific reviewers where there was actually a reward for doing these kinds of reviews, um, because, like, the way science currently is structured, there's almost no reward at all for reviewing, for doing well, and that's real what... reviews. 
you know, I mean, the world is full of, you know, you go to PubMed, the world is full of reviews too, but they're all tend to be based on the bias. So that's when I get back to, you know, what I want my Supreme Court to do, uh, both court and jury, is do the review and say, I mean, can you could imagine, I'm sure, 10 issues in the COVID and vaccine world right now that you think you're right, conventional wisdom is against you, and you would like some unbiased, you would like to be able to sue the purveyors of the conventional wisdom and force judges and a jury to look at your evidence versus their evidence and come to some conclusion about what's reliable and what's not and what other research has to be said. And more than that, even how this discussion should be phrased. So imagine they could say, look, if you people in the conventional wisdom you can no longer say this is known for sure. And if you do, we're throwing you out of science. You know, you get the red flag, you're gone. Um, what you can say is that this is a likely hypothesis. You could phrase it the way scientists, and we're struggling to understand it better. And there's an alternative hypothesis, and here's the alternative. I mean, I mean, <laughs> All right. Well, I think we should end on this note, Gary, because I th I think this is this is one of these things where it's going to take a long time, a lot of a lot of a lot of uh, thinking, but also I think a lot of uh, uh, a lot of people have to come to realization that the the structures that we've set up are not serving us well. Well, and that's 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 the kicker. How do you not just people, but they have to be influential people, and then they have to agree to work together, and then you know. So um, let, let's leave it at that. Uh, uh, this is it's this this is Professor Jay Bhattacharya. I've been interviewing Gary Tobbs, who the author of a new book, Rethinking Diabetes. I uh, I highly recommend anyone uh, who's who's uh, uh, interested in science and problems in science or, or, or in in diet and nutrition, or has a a patient, a friend, or a patient, or or uh, or a or uh, a colleague, or themselves are diabetic. Go read Gary's book. It's a fantastic read. Uh, Gary, thank you for coming to the show, and thank you for uh, for spending so much time with me. I really appreciate it. Uh, Jay, thank you for having me. Hi, everyone. A quick word from our first and exciting new sponsor, Alchemy Elements. We've been shopping around trying to find the best sponsors that align with our mission and our values and what we stand for, and we've come across Alchemy Elements, which I'm very excited to bring to you guys, which is a synergistic herbal supplement. It's a mix of several adaptogenic plant compounds. For those of you who don't know, adaptogens, you might have heard on Andrew Huberman's podcast, are uh, plant medicines that help the body adapt to stress, essentially. And so there's a number of adaptogens in here, including cordyceps mushrooms, reishi mushrooms, astrologus, shiljot, polygala, lion's mane mushrooms, and other compounds as well. And you just take a tablespoon of this, you put it in your morning coffee or your smoothie or protein shake, and you're good to go. Um, I've been doing this for about a week. And as it suggests, um, some of the short-term effects of increased focus, increased concentration, more energy, I've already been feeling some of that. Uh, look forward to taking it more in the long term and reporting back as we do more of these ads. Uh, we've been very careful and selective in what to, what, what to sponsor on our program. And this is something that I can totally get behind. And as long as you keep hearing ads about this particular product, Alchemy Elements, 
you can be assured that this is something that I stand behind and can personally vouch for and recommend individuals try. Um, so for a limited time right now, um, people who are watching or listening to this podcast, they can get a 10% discount on their first order, or they can get a 30% discount for all subscription orders if you um, subscribe for a certain amount of deliveries per month. And if you um, order a subscription package, then you can get the premium gold kit as well, which includes this um, really nice gold bottle and a gold spoon to store your alchemy elements. Um, just use the code word illusion. If you're on Spotify or Apple or Substack, um, we'll drop a link below, or you can manually uh, type in alchemyelements.com and you can add um, your uh, products to the cart and you can put in the code illusion and you can get the 10% off discount for the first order or 30% off for the subscription order and you can get your gold kit. Uh, thank you so much to Alchemy Elements. Um, please check them out and uh, I hope you enjoy their product.